HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Greenhorns, this is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers, coming to you today from sunny California, talking to Matt Allward, who is a fisherman in Alaska, who I was fortunate to meet in my recent super thrilling adventure in Alaska. Oh, the birds are eating the cover crop. Uh, Super fun adventure in Alaska, which you can read about in the article at Rural in These Times, which took me a heck of a long time to write. And welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me. So um, traditionally we have young farmers on here talking about their stories of access to land, interpreting a little bit of the pathway into agriculture, their own farm business, what some of the obstacles have been and what um, actions or attitudes help them to navigate so that's kind of what we're going to do for you, too, and um, there's a lot of interest. I've had a lot of people ca- calling and emailing saying they're really liking this whole fish theme. Do you want to just get started by introducing how you fell into fishing? Uh, yeah, actually, just someone offered me a job, and I didn't have a job, so that's how I started fishing, and after a few years okay. of that canning, <clears throat> and then working on a, in the trades, build, building fishing nets, I finally decided to try it on my own, and I, I found a real small old boat to start with, so I was able to actually afford to get in, and uh, after a couple of years of that, I decided it was what I wanted to do, and had to find a way to get a bigger boat and move up to the big leagues. So let's talk about where you've gotten to now so that we have some context, because from a young farmer perspective, you've already really, like, super made it. You own your own business or two businesses, a fishing business and the net business. So you're kind of like the equivalent of um, sitting on a heck of a lot of land and a bunch of equipment. Do you want to just kind of 
review where you're at now? So, yeah, now I have a, a 53-foot seine boat. We fish uh, salmon in the summers in Kodiak. And then I also have some quota to be able to fish halibut, which I just acquired this fall. And then I also have a business called Bulletproof Nets where we build and repair the commercial purse stains for all the rest of the fleet in Homer, Alaska, where we have 14 employees who work pretty much from September through July on fishing nets. And uh, <clears throat> it just kind of started at the bottom and slowly slowly worked my way up to get here. And are there lots of people like you who started at the bottom and worked their way up? What's the character of the community of fishermen where you are, and are there many people like you who started when you did and worked their way up? Uh, yeah, there was some of us started when when I bought into the salmon industry. It was kind of on the tail end of a real downturn, so a lot of people had actually got out of the fishery, and it, and the prices were just starting to come around. So I got lucky enough to be able to buy in when boat values were still down real low, and uh, and I could afford to buy in easy. So now, ten years later. My boat's more than doubled in value, so to try to enter in now is a way bigger loan you're looking at trying to get. So there still are young people getting in, but <clears throat> it's harder. I mean, you have finding access to larger loans with no credit history is becoming a lot more difficult for young people. But there are still some who are managing to do it. So um, when I was there, I met a lady named Linda who was working for Sea Grant who was putting out a report called The Graying of the Fleet, and I know you talked to her recently. Do you want to reflect briefly on what her report says and, and how that relates to what you observe kind of on the day-to-day -day and why maybe you're on so many freaking boards? So, um, I mean, basically the because we, we have permits that give us access to the salmon fishery or other fisheries. So the average age of a permit holder has been steadily going up, which I think now is somewhere in the 50s. <clears throat> so it's the, everyone, everyone, all the guys are getting older. There's been fewer entrants into the fishery, so the average age of of owners in the industry is going up. So that's the what we're calling grain of the fleet and trying to trying to figure out ways to address that. One of the things that you said there was useful um, and relates a lot to the young farmer situation, which is that it's not like there aren't young farm workers or farm hands. There's just not that many farm owners. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about the characters of ownership patterns in Alaska and um, and what the groups that you're working with are advocating in terms of supporting and sustaining that local ownership of the fishery and what that means in the town where you live. So, uh, you know, like I said, a lot of the, the owners have been getting older, but not quite to retirement age yet, so they, they still have their boats, so there's not... There hasn't been that many boats available to even try to purchase. And like I said, the values of our vessels has more than doubled in the last 10 years as the value of the fishery came back. 
So when there wasn't much value in the fishery, it wasn't a viable option to try to get into because it was a hard way to make a living. Now that you can make a good living when you're in, the entry costs are so much higher that that's the barrier. So one of the avenues we're trying to work is to, we have a, a great loan program in the state of Alaska that um, was a design back in the 70s, I believe, to help new entrants into the fishery. But the monetary necessities of getting in now have risen so much that the loan program is not up to date with the current realities of the industry. So we're trying to, through legislation and policy, trying to revamp the loan program so it will uh, make it <clears throat> give more access to younger people who don't have a history who need to get these bigger loans now to even be able to buy in, which is one avenue. Um, another thing that is in the works that people are working on is trying to create a permit bank where a local entity could own the per own some permits to be able to lease at a low low lease cost to new local community people who are trying to get into the fishery to try to reduce the entry cost originally. <clears throat> it might be a lease-to-own type program. It's still in the very beginning of trying to figure out how that might look. And uh, and then there's what Linda's working on, which is the Sustainable Fisheries Trust, I believe, which I've actually not been spending, not gotten too involved with them yet, but um, they're working on <clears throat> trying to develop a program where people who who are actually reaching retirement age and want to sell out of the fishery, and that's their retirement nest egg is their actual rights, fishing rights in their vessels, trying to figure out a way to be able to have an, a trust that could take care of the retirement part for the old person but set them up with a new young entrance from the community and give them a <clears throat> low lease cost to be able to purchase that over time from the guy retiring. So those are kind of some things we're working on right now, but there is no real easy solution, really. Well, and, you know, that reminds me of a, a Willie Nelson or um, John, John Mellencamp song called Rain on the Scarecrow, where there's young farmers in the 80s, it's like a farm crisis, and they're like, government wants to give us another loan. We don't want another loan. We want a fair price. And that conversation was really strong um, in the 80s in, in the farm crisis. And uh, listening to you guys there talking about how um, your prices are so uncontrollable, it really brought me uh, back into that framework of, of that the early conversation about parity and the price of production. And I... I wonder how that relates to fish world. Um, we talked on the last show about how fisher people are providing their fish to cannery because the volume is so great that you're not able to sell it locally, so it has to be packed and processed and then shipped. Um, but that that well, maybe you can ex maybe go for explaining like what happens when you fish, where does it go, and how does pricing happen? Well, in the in the large scale salmon commodity market that not not all I mean not everyone is in this larger volume which is basically acts like a commodity which is like our just the sockeye salmon alone which is the high end best tasting most valuable salmon over 70% is still exported out of the country 
so the markets are completely set by global <clears throat> global relationships and uh, as being an exporter when the dollar is strong it's actually really bad for industry so for instance last last season sockeye salmon price to the boat was half of what it was the year before in some places even less than half in just one year and the I mean, the fishermen think the cannery is the canneries is taking advantage of us when there's all sorts of global market things going on that most of us don't really understand in reality. So that it's we're just at the whims of what's going on in the world. <clears throat> Another big one of our products is the the roe from pink salmon, which is primarily an Eastern European product, and since embargo, uh, Russia has an embargo on imports of American seafood that is taking a huge toll on our industry. So there's all these factors that we barely understand, let alone have any control over. And yeah, our prices basically in one year cut cut in half and trying to plan a business model on a market that's that volatile is not a very easy task. There are, I mean, there are some smaller operations that aren't catching large volumes that are able to direct market their own fish, and that's a much more stable uh, market to be in. But if you're in one of the volume fisheries, you just don't have that as an option. So why are the, what are the Russians, I'm sorry, why is this price dropping like this? Why, like, who explains it to you, and how, as producers, are you organized in order to kind of learn how it works and engage and make your voice heard? Like, what institutions exist in the way that Farm Aid and other groups grew to express the dissatisfaction of producers in the 80s? Um, What ways are you guys organized to try and come to, you know, a fair outcome? We're pretty much not organized to be able to come to a fair outcome at all. Uh, last time in the early 2000s when the pink salmon value went down to $0.05 cents a pound from a high in the late 80s of $0.80 cents a pound, <clears throat> uh, guys actually tried to strike, which works if everyone actually strikes, but someone the few times they tried it, someone always broke the strike, and there's still huge animosity from the older guys who were around back then over that. And and nowadays, one of the problems is with entry costs so high, a lot of people have to actually borrow money from the cannery that they're going to sell their fish to, like a lot of money. And then you're basically stuck doing whatever they whatever they say you got to do is one issue. Um, but there is no real, I mean... So that's have, like vertical integration through debt. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, it's not the... I mean, there's been a lot of brainstorming on what we can do. There's no real actual organization. I mean, we have United Fishermen of Alaska, but that's uh, multiple different fishing associations, and it's not just salmon, because right now we're just talking about salmon. Um, so there is actually no real one place one organization trying to deal with this issue to get our information it's kind of the canneries tell us their point of view we, there's numerous different economists and people who 
dig into this, and there's articles written, and through all the different groups, we try to get all that information out to everybody so people have a better understanding of what's going on. But, I mean, the big thing right now is the dollar is very strong, and most of the places that fish go to, like Japan or Europe, um, currency, their currency is way down. So it basically adds a lot of cost for the end user in the foreign countries who are trying to buy American seafood. And on top of that, we have farm salmon, which has always been something we've been fighting and uh, and now the like Norway produces one of the large producers of farm salmon, and for them to import into America, the cost is way down. So there's a huge discrepancy in value. So when you go to supermarket in the U.S., imported farm salmon now is so cheap that it's just a way more attractive option for people than wild Alaska salmon. <clears throat> Although one new thing we have now in our country is. The FDA just decided to allow genetically modified farm salmon to be sold with no labeling, which industry was extremely against, but one possible potential positive for the Alaska wild seafood industry is that if someone wants to guarantee now that they're not eating genetically modified salmon, their only option is to buy wild fish instead of farm fish. Well, yeah, that, I mean, that was going to be my, my, my kind of, well, my two questions were kind of like, where does this go? Um, you know, National Geographic has just put out this, like, another super glorious glamour story about fish farming off the coast of Chile, and these guys are ra- raising GMO salmon off the coast of Panama, and there's this hype about... You know, and there's a lot of investment money that wants to go and find a place to invest in these kinds of high capital, like a lot of capital-intensive in- VC operations are talking in boomtown types of types of language about fish farming. Um, maybe you could kind of hypothecate, or hypothecating is probably a dangerous thing for you to do, but, you know, what could happen in a bad way and what could happen in a good way and... Um, and what are the factors that would determine how it goes? <clears throat> and I say this from the perspective of, you know, we in Greenhorn's world, we are mostly young farmers, but there's also a lot of people who are connected to foodies and foodie markets and, and people who care about community economies and the new economies. And, you know, there's been a lot of conversation so far about participating directly between farmers and fishermen in the marketing and sales of these products as at least a first step to grow and deepen the consumer commitment to wild salmon and to the communities that produce wild salmon. Um, But I guess the question would be, like, the way things are going, which way are they going? It's hard. I mean, right now, like I said, farm salmon is so cheap that we're losing the battle again. Back in the early 2000s when, when when salmon prices were at rock bottom, record all-time historic lows. There was a huge marketing effort put into marketing wild salmon in America and trying to point out why it's better than farm salmon, which there are actually a lot of reasons, one of which is the uh, the omega-3 fatty acids 
in farm salmon are actually not the ones that are really healthy for you, like they like to advertise in the, like they are in the wild salmon. Wild salmon is actually way healthier for you, besides that it tastes so much better. So we had a huge marketing campaign, and at the same time, there was the huge Chilean, uh, I can't remember the disease, but wiped out all the farms down there. So their supply went way down. We put lots of effort into educating Americans on the on the benefits of wild salmon, and that had a pretty decent, it's hard to say what how much of a role that played in the salmon prices coming back, but it definitely played a very significant role. And now that Chile finally, not that long ago, got over that whole <clears throat> epidemic, and their industry is booming back, and Norway is just multiplying like crazy. Their side, and there's other countries too getting in. <clears throat> now we're starting to lose that battle again with the American public. So really, it's going to take a marketing, large marketing campaign, which takes large sums of money. Unfortunately, the state of Alaska right now, who is mostly funded on oil, is budget. Our budget is we're in big budget issues right now. So the, we don't have the money to market wild salmon in our own country like we should right now. So for instance, Norway Norway right now is spending about two or three times as much money marketing just Norwegian farm salmon in America than Alaska is marketing our fish to the rest of the world. So <clears throat> I think, I mean, that's one of the big issues that has brought our price down recently is the influx of cheap farm salmon and the fact that we need to better educate our population on the value and the value of buying wild salmon to American small family businesses. And there has been, I mean, like I said, there's a lot more effort in direct marketing just and, you know, see to see to table type stuff, but that's just, it's on the smaller volume fisheries, or and so that's not really playing out to help us on these kind of larger, more commodity type scale salmon industry, unfortunately. But there is, I mean, there's a lot more awareness, I think, in the country of the benefits to wild salmon, but when you go to the supermarket and farm salmon filet that looks nice and pink because it has coloring in it sitting next to the sockeye and it's a tenth the price. Um, that's just what we're up against. Well, uh, you know, this is my this is my opportunity to remind everybody that there's, you know, the high cheap food is a lie and the cheap salmon is a lie and that those cheap salmon are eating uh, agricultural products that are coming from horrendously environmentally costly monocultures that are disrupting some of our prime most beautiful land in the world and a lot of that is um soy based and um and um a lot of like um fish me um they have to replace the fish meal in their ration and they're replacing it with the meal from soybeans and from come on little brain what's there is it cottonseed or uh, yeah, hmm, now I know. forgot. Just, Shoot, my brain yeah, I mean, that doesn't is, have you know, it the anymore. Point is that the, the fish meal that they traditionally feed the salmon, farm salmon with, is wild forage fish that's 
getting caught just to feed the farm fish, and I, I don't I don't have the numbers in front of me of how many pounds of wild forest forage fish it takes to make a pound of farm salmon, but it's a re- reverse ratio. We're taking more protein out of the ocean to create farm salmon than you're gaining back. And um, the, now they're trying to find replacements for it, which is large commodity farm hey, salmon, Matt, which is your realm. So we're talking about farm salmon. We're talking about them feeding fish meal. We're talking about them feeding now more and more soybean meal as a as a um, supplemental food source for these. Basically, they're like CAFOs of the ocean. But, of course, the question ultimately is, how is the ocean doing and how are our stewardship practices going in the face of um, ocean acidification and declines in fish stocks? And one of the things that Alaskans kept saying over and over is how the Alaska fishery is one of the only sustainable fisheries in the world because of your really intensive, data-driven, statewide, well-funded, well-organized, conservation-oriented fisheries policy. And that's something that I would love to learn more about, and I think so would the audience. Do you want to give it a shot, Matt? I'll I'll give it a shot. So with with salmon, which is our iconic large volume fish, the they obviously they return and spawn in rivers, and then they go out to the ocean to grow up. So we actually know very little about what the salmon do out in the ocean, except they go out there and swim around and eat whatever they could find and come back. <clears throat> so what? How ocean acidification potentially? I mean, last year we just happened to have one of one of like I think the second largest salmon run on record. So obviously, the resource is doing well right now. Some of the stuff that the salmon eat out in the ocean is the little micro crustaceans that are being affected by ocean acidification, which we don't know all that much about right now. There's actually a, a bill in Congress right now to try to appropriate some more money towards ocean acidification studying, which a lot of us support. Um, but the big, the biggest thing for salmon sustainability is habitat in the rivers, which Fortunately, Alaska was the last place in the country where fishermen started fishing. And by the time it was starting to ramp up here, we had learned a lot of lessons from the East Coast and from the North Pacific, Washington, Oregon area. <clears throat> and uh, have and had learned that without a healthy habitat in rivers, that salmon populations don't survive. So our management, which, by the way, our, the funding for our state management is got cut 10% last year and is looking at another 10% cut this year due our, to our budget problems. So that is, as management loses money, they lose the ability to actually count fish going up rivers because that's basically what they do is on all the major rivers, they have a weir across the river where the fish have a certain spot to go through and they have fish and game, mostly college kids out there actually counting the fish as they go by or some of them have more high-tech sonars that count fish, and we're, we're not allowed to harvest fish until we have escapement of salmon up the river that we need. So fishing game monitors that very close to the season, and they kind of have a, there's a curve for every date. They have an expected range of what 
fish they feel like they need in the rivers. <clears throat> so they follow that very adamantly, and if we're anywhere close to the bottom of that curve, they just don't let us fish in, in those areas. Um, so, so this would well, be I mean, considered a, managing a common pool resource, and this would be the science and the math and the manpower and the habitat monitoring that would be considered necessary for accommodating our appetite to the habitat of the target species, i.e., like, a really good idea. Let's learn from this. Yes, Sorry, very continue good idea. That was, I mean, basically the reason Alaska became a state, like, fought for statehood and was all around salmon management and trying to take it back from the feds who were way more loose on what they would allow. And that was basically what got Alaskans to really fight for statehood. And that was, it's right in our, the Alaska State Constitution says uh, renewable resources like fisheries will be maintained to the maximum sustained yield principle, which there could be some argument if that's <clears throat> uh, protective enough. But with salmon, it seems to be proving working because now 100 and something years into the salmon industry in the state, we're still seeing record number of runs. So it looks like that part of management is working well. And there's, I mean, there's other plenty of other fisheries. The other large, the largest fishery in the world actually is pollock fishing, which happens out Bering Sea and Aleutian Islands mostly. And uh, and they're actually they're managing those stocks way, way, way underneath maximum sustained yield levels, given the biomass and what could be harvested, and they're like way underneath that out there. So and those are two of the main reasons why we're looked at as worldwide as such well-managed, best-managed fisheries in the world, basically. But this does all take money and manpower, and uh, it's one of the big fights that we're, we're always working is to keep the funding there, to keep the scientists collecting data and analyzing data and making sure that we're doing everything we can to guarantee our kids and great-grandkids and beyond are going to have an industry while still maintaining the viability of the industry to, for us to stay in it. Yeah, so I was just talking yesterday, um, filming for my little movie, my little web series called Our Land, um, a couple in Ventura County who were, whose parent, whose father was one of the founders of biological control, i.e. growing big insects to eat little insects and growing parasite insects to eat pest insects and studying the way insect ecologies work together in order to protect the crops. And they were talking about how the shape of the industry really defined what was possible for biological control. And so when all the growers paid in, and paid on an acre basis to basically pay to grow bugs, and then they released the bugs out into the basin, the water basin. They had these different biologically shaped, like geologically, like valleys, basically. Each valley had a little bug district, essentially. And then each grower would pay per acre to take part in the bug plan, and the bugs would be released, and the whole area would be managed uh, according to the logic that makes sense to the bugs. And um, it feels like that kind of logic with the fish depends on there being enough 
fish caught and the value of the fish being worth it enough to pay for the scientists and their labs and their fluorescent lights and their kids' college education and everything. And I wonder what the kind of, like, economics are of what it takes to do all that management because it would seem like if we were looking at an undistorted economy, it would be pricing the fish to where the fish could afford to pay for the scientists. Do you understand what I'm saying? Which, would, which we actually, with all the taxes and fees put on the fishing industry, <clears throat> of course the argument depends on what side of the table you're on, but it depends on how you're looking at it. Because actually all of our, there's a landing tax, so every every dollar worth of any fish landed in the state of Alaska has a 4% tax on it, which is actually split in half, 50-50, with the communities that the fish are landed in and the state the state government. <clears throat> so, so wait a minute, let's just say that again. The fish are represent a significant source of a local tax base. Yes, they do. Depending on for for local coastal communities that that have canneries and that land fish in them. Because it's actually where the fish is processed. So <clears throat> actually our lovely town of Homer kind of gets the short end of this one cuz we used to have a large cannery that burned down in the 90s. And we don't anymore. We have some very small, small-scale, kind of higher-end product canneries, but the larger volume of fish actually gets truck landed in Homer, but trucked over to another community where there is a cannery, and that community gets gets the money. But yes, it is a very significant part in some some communities for sure. And the part that goes to the state alone doesn't quite cover management costs, <clears throat> but it's close. And then if you add on all the the value that goes into the communities that the state's not having to provide to the communities because they're getting funded themselves. It adds a huge value. But with our, our state mostly 90% funded on oil revenue and that down by whatever it is now, two-thirds, <clears throat> of course we're one of the first, we're one of the target industries on who should pay more. So uh, the, our governor actually just came out with a proposal to raise our raise our taxes by one, one more percent, but not share that with the community, so it all would go into the general fund and not necessarily be slated to go right back into paying for the management. So there's many different conversations going on uh, as to figure out how to make sure that the resource keeps funding the management as we go forward. Uh, well, and it seems like this is a conversation, you know, Alaska so glamorous, so large, so wild, so free, so oil-dependent. Uh, it's like a um, canary, back to the bug, you know, but it's like a canary in the coal mine. It seems like a lot of the issues that we're going to be facing in with contracting ecological wealth and um, expansion of globalization and fluctuating energy markets and, you know, a tax system and corporate systems that are kind of rigged to each other in unfortunate ways, um, that there's going to be a lot of this kind of drama up ahead. And how do we as producers kind of fit into that drama? And how do we orient our businesses and our community economics in such a way as to be most resilient? Um, is a big question, and I know you're not going to be able to answer it completely, but it seems like Worth asking anyway. Um, and that, that is the big you know, question. And 
Sorry. Well, I had another follow-up question, but maybe you can reflect, and then I'll ask my question. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a question that we've all been pondering. There's no, there's no unified answer to that. I mean, from my own personal opinion, if, if the management was going to lose funding to the level where they couldn't actually monitor the weirs and count the fish that are getting into the river, they're not going to, basically, they're going to be conservative and not let us fish to protect the resource, which is great for the resource. But it might be that, because it's actually not healthy for salmon to let too many fish into the river, because then all the young fry eat eat themselves out of food, and it's unhealthy for the population. So there's downfalls to overescaping too. But without funding, they just don't know, so they're not going to let us fish. So personally, I would rather, if I have to pay more taxes out of the money to fund the management to keep fishing, it kind of makes sense to me, but... The problem with taxes is that it actually just, in the way the state law is, it goes into the general fund, and there's no way to actually earmark it to pay for the management, and then it's up to the legislators to be able to do with what they want. So it's not as simple as let's just give ourselves another tax, you know, raise our taxes, pay for management, because there's no guarantee that raising our taxes is going to actually pay for our own management. Well, the guarantee, of course, is that we have an elected, that we have this thing called a political democracy, where we demand that our legislators do what they say they will do, which is, and that we have mechanisms to hold them to it. Which is great. Um, the unfortunate reality of our state is that the mass population that thus has the most representation in our elected government is not from small coastal communities that depend on these resources for a community's livelihood and mostly look at the fish as their right to take for sport fish type opportunities so there's a large internal state struggle between the coastal communities and the in interior communities that have the population and all the representation and are not necessarily on our side so that is another piece of this big puzzle that we're fighting with. So we don't, we're, we, the complexity that we can untangle today is, of course, limited. Um, but I think that many of our listeners will agree that these are, these are fascinating quandaries and they um, do have bearing across context. And that the negotiation and kind of real political power that we bring to bear in these situations is always undermined by not having a strong community basis or um, constituents, constituency who understands the issues, is ready, ready to call, is ready to make a fuss, um, and is, is vested in the interests of the place and of its, of its ecosystem. Um, I wanted to just tackle one last topic before we peace out. And if there's something you wanted to talk about, maybe you should think about it, too, because then you can have a final shtick um, or spiel or whatever it is that salmon yeah, fishers do. Really have a final do. I think you're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that is, you know, as these fisher, you know, so a fisher 
community are obviously um, the fishing towns are small, smaller towns. The fishermen are only a minority. They're mostly men. They're mostly out on their boat, and they're physically working super hard, killing lots of fish, coming back in. And then they maybe want to get off the friggin' boat, and maybe they want to get out of the friggin' town. And so they, as representatives within the democracy, are kind of challenging to work with uh, for organizing. But what happens when there's a threat to the fishery and the river is in danger of becoming polluted, not overfished, but polluted by um, large mining interests? Um, What is there to learn from the way that the fishing community and the political system sprang into action from the Bristol Bay uh, mine, and maybe just give a little of that story so that we can take that away as our final lesson. Yeah, so Pebble Mines, obviously, what you're talking about, <clears throat> which was, is a proposed largest pit mine, open pit mine in the world, right at the headwaters to Bristol Bay, which is the largest wild sockeye salmon fishery in the world, <clears throat> which was a huge potential crisis and actually did bring together not only just fishermen, but all all of the local communities in Bristol Bay into a rather large campaign to to fight Pebble Mine, which ultimately resulted in the EPA kind of shutting the whole thing down before we even got to the permit process, which there's been lawsuits over. There is a lawsuit over. I just saw today, actually, in an article, there is a bill coming out of the House I'm not sure what state, but we'll basically remove part of the Clean Water Act that the EPA used to stop the pebble mine from happening. So we'll see. We're obviously watching that close. But yeah, it takes. You're, the, you're saying there is a there's a proposal to undermine the Clean Water Act and particularly the part of the Clean Water Act that the EPA used to shut down pebble mine. Yeah, the, yeah. I, I just brief, briefly read an article actually this morning, but so it. Man. And, it's not from Alaska, so I'm not sure if it's aimed just at that. But um, they're always trying to find ways to. And honestly, I mean, if I'm, there is the whole permitting process, which is supposedly is in place to do all the environmental assessments and determine if the benefits outweigh the risks. Um, but with <clears throat> with Pebble Mine, the, all the the, rest, the community the communities and the fishermen, who obviously don't all live out in Bristol Bay, all came together because if there was an accident, it could take out the world's largest salmon fishery, which is a huge industry that supports many, many, many small... Basically, every every fisherman represents a small business, often family, small business. So there's thousands of small businesses that all create one industry fighting against the mining industry, which is just a few rather large companies. And the the Bristol Bay Mine brought everybody together in a way that we have not seen in the fisheries for a long time. <clears throat> and and so for that issue, it was great at getting us to actually get off our butts and work together. Fishermen are just naturally very strong-willed, independent people who think they could take on the world by themselves and are very hard to organize. So crisis did bring us together on that and it it was great for that it's the kind of the disheartening part of 
being in the policy side of fisheries is it almost always seems like we're on the defense against something like a pebble mine or our budget, fishing game budget getting taken away so we don't have management. Um, and it's these, these smaller things maybe most people don't see as a crisis as much. So it just takes trying to educate everybody what's going on, to try to get people involved, which is a never-ending fight just to convince people they should be involved. that yeah you know if only we could make it if 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 i just you know want to throw out an aspiration i mean if everybody was getting like into their if they were as jammed up on these topics as they are on their instagram feed we would be in a lot better shape and we're gonna have to get some serious mojo going to have better involvement and engagement and learning and knowing because what I noticed about this whole scene, same thing in farm scene, and, you know, it seemed like you're on all these boards in the young fisher scene. It's like a lot of the watchdogging and mo- and monitoring and advocacy and uh, the connections, the networks, the understanding, the policy literacy, the having had a time to do the research, knowing who's who, having face time with legislators, Right now, a lot of that work is being done by people who have not just gray temples, but gray all around their whole head. And our generation had better start tuning in and getting involved because, I mean, I just looked around now on my email, and there's like five regional sustainable ag nonprofits looking for executive directors all at the same time. And uh, we have got to get involved. We have got to get engaged. We have to learn how the game is being played, and we have to become very adept, very um, as much as we can. Yes, that's all. <laughs> that's all. Do you have any last parting thoughts before um, you go back to your normal scheduled activities? Well, actually, I'm visiting my 94-year-old grandma right now, so I'm going to go back to visiting her. But <clears throat> uh, yeah, just spend the extra money to buy wild Alaska seafood because, first of all, it's way healthier for you. And second of all, you're by doing so, you're supporting small community-based family businesses. And, uh, and you're, taking, you're being, helping us be stewards of our environment by buying our products so we could generate the funds to put some of that back into the management. Right on. So uh, there's wild. more information at the Buy Wild Alaska Fish. There's more information at the... Or any um, wild fish, for that matter. But Any wild fish. Because it's not just Alaska. There is a rather large American fisheries that is largely made up of small businesses around the country, and we all support each other, so... So, um, and there's more information about community fisheries and how to get fish into your CSA, or if you're a grocer or a distributor and you're into thinking this through a little bit while you have all this extra time over the holidays, uh, you can check out the article I wrote, which is going to be linked. It's in these times magazine, the rural edition, and we cover all this and more 
so exciting. Uh, looking forward to seeing you again sometime, Matt, and um, we'll just keep trying to send smart young people up your way. Yeah, I think it would be great to try to get some young fishermen back your way and kind of learn from some of your guys' lessons back there, too. And kind of connect. Uh-huh, I'm single. We'll keep... <laughs> See you later. Some young guys and send them your way. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>